1: Hello, my name is Chris Pyle, and I'm head of Lancaster Royal Grammar School. And it's a privilege to welcome you to the Inspiring Leadership Series. And I'm going to hand over now to our host, Jonathan Bowman Perks.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Chris. It's a real pleasure to have you on the series. And with all the other guests, you were referred and recommended by uh, another guest who've been on the series already, Brian Ashton, the England rugby coach. Uh, and he is, you remember, along with Kevin Roberts. Um, from Sarchi and Sarchi, the global CEO, are both part of your school's Black Sheep Society of people who've been expelled from the school, but had gone on to become very successful in life. But uh, it was so nice of Brian to recommend you as an inspiring leader. So lovely having you on the series. Let's, Thank you. Thank tell you us a, to, no, so it's just, it's just great. So tell us a bit about uh, currently what you're doing and what the school is about. Um, and then we'll go back to your childhood. Super, thank you very much indeed. Right, so I'm head of Lancaster Royal
1: Grammar School. I've been there for, been here since 2012, so about nine years so far. That's just a blink in an eye, in the eye of the length of the school. So the school is just coming up to celebrating its 550th anniversary this year, although we think it's a little bit older. We've traced it back to 1235. Um, So actually, we're probably, we must be one of the oldest uh, state schools in the country, Uh, but we're a very distinctive school. I'd like to say we're an unusual school and unusually in lots of good ways. So one of our distinctives is as well as being, uh, we hope, the school of choice for Lancaster and Morecambe and the surrounding region, we're also a boarding school and we have a boarding school with 170 boarders um, from around the world.
0: Fantastic, fantastic, well, no, it's very well regarded. And as I grew up in Halifax, we pronounce Halifax, um, and, and also, as at school at uh, St. Peter's and St. Olive School in York, um, your, your school was always well regarded then, but it's particularly well regarded now. And modesty aside, um, the tone is set by the top or the fish rots from the head. And so, congratulations for the way you lead the school. And I know from others who've been in education, either as bursars or as uh, teachers, that it's very hard herding teachers because they're like cats, they all go off in different directions, they are all very independent and clever people who don't want to necessarily be guided and cajoled in one particular direction. So it's, it's a, it's a tough leadership gig. Um, And of course, then you've got, you add to it, the equation, you've got pupils who are at that formative stage of trying to exert their own authority or find out who they are. And you've got, you've got a few, few challenges. Take us back, if you would, Chris, to uh, your upbringing and uh, maybe who influenced you at schools and and, as you grew up, to be the leader you are today as the headmaster?
1: The first thing I'll say is I I definitely didn't plan to become a teacher. I think that would be my, uh, you know, I think if you'd spoken to the 18-year-old me or even the 21-year-old me, I think teaching was was not on the list. Um, But I think actually um, perhaps it was ordained or perhaps that was the way it was always going to turn out. I, I think actually the, I suppose, like, the most profound influences really were from my family. And actually I was sort of very fortunate to grow up in a family that valued education very highly. Lots of them are teachers themselves or academics and they're professors. And I think also with a sort of vein of um, kind of liberal values and curiosity running through that family, I think sort of actually that was really important to me. So my mum was an English teacher. My father was a professor of chemical engineering Uh, both in the UK and abroad. Um, And I think I just always grew up with that regard for learning and knowledge. I think what I didn't realise at the time was that schools really do have the power to change people's lives. And I think that's all one of my core beliefs or one of the things that I've seen again and again now is that actually education opens doors. Individual teachers can be amazingly powerful to individuals. um, And that ultimately, the aim of schools, or certainly my aim in running the school, is to be a place where every single student finds their voice. I think ultimately, that's the purpose of education. So education is freedom. Education opens doors. But it's not at all about one size fits all. It's all about find your niche, having the confidence to find your voice, and and stepping out. Mm. I think the um, sort of having said that teaching was never on my list, in a funny way, I, I, I had lots of excellent teachers at school you know and, and I, I think of um you'd be surprised to hear me say it now but i think my physics teacher at gcse a teacher called mr gavashak uh just the most fabulously warm empathetic enthusiastic character uh think of one of my a-level history teachers a teacher called dr grace who very sadly died uh, quite young the year, year after i left the school and just somebody with such um I suppose just such sort of humanity and warmth. I always remember he was personally quite left wing uh, and he would always say to us, but I read the right wing newspapers because, because I, I don't want to be the kind of teacher that only drinks from one spring. And, and actually, I think those people were quite powerful to me. Um, but I think actually for me, it was really at university that I met one or two people who were very, very inspiring. So I think of um, there's a chap a couple of years ahead of me at university who was sort of the golden boy of his generation, became a lecturer incredibly young, a chap called Stuart Lane, who's now a professor in Switzerland. And actually just seeing people taking their subjects so seriously, so I'm a, I'm a geographer or a physical geographer by background. Uh, and actually just seeing the energy that he devoted to individuals as well, was quite quite remarkable. Um, so there are, and there are a few of those around. I think there's was, there was another, just to name, name one other, inspiring teacher from my youth there was a um, professor called Martin Sharp who was um, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's actually quite a well-known glaciologist so he studies glaciers and he's exactly what you'd expect a polar explorer to look like so he's got the kind of the, the big beard he's a man of very very few words um, but somebody who just took what he was doing so seriously that you couldn't fail to be inspired by by his own remarkable journey. So, so, no, I think I was certainly very fortunate to come across some fabulous people.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and during your life, um, we all have highs and lows. We learn a lot, probably more from our mistakes than from our successes. But what first would be something that you were happiest about, uh, that maybe even proud about, if we don't think proud too bad of a word? Um, and what you learned from that and then something which was a dark moment in your life or your work but yet you still learned something from that what would you say Chris on those two I think
1: professionally I think the the sort of the achievement I'm proudest of here actually has been about sixth form girls so the school had been uh, essentially a boys school for half a millennium we made the decision to sort of with the governing body to welcome sixth form girls three or four years ago and I think actually that was the most brilliant journey, actually, of firstly working with the team of people to plan it and to move it from uh, an idea which seemed completely unrealistic in the in the context of the culture of the school through to something that was actually almost universally I think within the school just about universally welcomed. and I think so if you talk to people now, they would say actually has only had positive benefits. I just remember. Sort of for me, that was really about, that was partly about the power of um, a clear vision. You know, I just had this, a very clear mental image, sort of funnily enough, of what the sixth form girls would look like and what they would bring to the school. And then it was really about the power of teamwork. You know, it was one of those things that actually on your own, you couldn't possibly have done. But to have an idea and to see other people coming on board with it, and then other people picking it up and running with it, and so we've just had our, this year, we've just admitted our 100th girl to the sixth form, which has been a fun moment for us. And, uh, and actually also had our first sixth form girls who have left the school coming back to alumni reunion events. There's something really powerful in that. And actually to think, actually, you, you can realize a dream and a vision mm-hmm. um, on, on that scale. I, th- I think sc- school, in terms of challenges, school has had plenty of challenges. Over the um, over the over the time, and I think, you know, actually, an, an institution that has twelve hundred teenagers will always have its moments and its ups and downs. I think actually the the most um, sort of interesting of those are I think the one. Th- this isn't th- yeah, this is double edged really. But there was one of the saddest moments in the, the history of the school was or in my time here, was we had um, a fabulous student who in the summer before he came to the school, was diagnosed with a terminal brain, brain tumor. So there's a chap called Rhys Holt, actually the most remarkable pupil. Uh, he'd had brain surgery over the summer before he started the school. There's a very touching photo of him standing at the school gates on his first day, uh, recently out of surgery, uh, but actually already with the terminal diagnosis or, or pretty soon after that, with the return of that diagnosis, his mother just the most amazingly inspiring person, determined to celebrate every moment, to make the most of him, uh, to make sure that the school knew how much he loved the school, and actually to see the way that the pupils around him responded to that, and then then some of our staff, um, you know, that 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 was a tough time for the school, but I think that really was one of those times when um, you know, as we sometimes say, when things are at their worst, we are at our best. And um, you know, and we still try and sort of honour his memory in in school now. But but I think that is partly in the nature of schools. You know, that actually a school, as I say, of, of over a thousand pupils with a couple of hundred staff, there will be plenty of people going through challenges. And I think mm-hmm. the sort of in a way the the challenge of my job or the privilege of my job is to be uh, is partly about being the pe- person that all the best things in the school will come to me and many of the most difficult will come and and, it's, and I think for me it's about sort of honouring the privilege of that and, um,
0: and and I and I sense it in you as you were talking about that I felt that, that you felt that and I think that's something which is very important the humanity we talked about humility and humour but the humanity of an inspiring leader like you, you've got to feel these things. And if you don't, you're in the wrong job. And I come across CEOs or leaders or headmasters or vice chancellors, some of whom are very cold uh, and very academic or intellectual, but they just don't get that people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. And, And you clearly get that. I see that. Thank you. That was very powerful for me. Bit of advice, uh, imagine you were going back to your school days when you were 16 to 18, learning all the things that you've learned, Chris, and the experiences you've had. What would you say to the young Chris Pyle? This doesn't matter, don't worry about that, but this is important. What would you, bit of advice would you give to your younger self now you know it? I think as I look back, I think I... I
1: didn't realise what a wide and varied place the world is and that people really do come in all shapes and sizes for a reason. And um, so I, I think I look back at somebody who was in some ways quite driven and quite ambitious, uh, had quite strong views about what I wanted to do in the world. And, and I think I just hadn't realised at that point, you know, I think it's something that, te- that's something that teaching Teaches you because you do meet a huge number of people that actually, um, on your own, you can't do a great deal, but actually, other people are there um, with just the widest variety of perspectives and experiences and skills. So I think if I go back to that eighteen year eighteen year old, I think I think he'd be very offended for me to, to hear me say that. Though I thought perhaps he was a little bit more narrow minded than than he thought he was. You know, mm. I thought I knew what, how the world worked. Um, I hadn't realised just what a fabulously kind of variegated place the world is. And, yeah. and, and actually, it's quite, it's right that people have different personalities and backgrounds and experiences. And, and I'm, yeah, and, 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 and to, to appreciate teamwork in that way.
0: Yeah, uh, it reminds me of the New York motto uh, of, of some of the old wise old boys who say, too soon old, too late smart. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that uh, we, we, we need to learn some lessons quite early on. And I, I, I relate to what you say, that either I thought I knew it or I was insecure. It was either a mix of one or the other. You, mm-hmm. you, you thought this is the way to be. There is one way. Uh, and to see that difference, that diversity, equality, and inclusion that we all take as crucial now, it wasn't then. It was like, why aren't they like my tribe? They're different from my training. We'll talk about that later on. Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass of uh, that we've, we've used from our research, Lee and I, um, about what makes high-performing leaders and teams. Um, and the first one is, rightly so, the, the sort of true north, the moral quotient, the MQ, about your values, your beliefs, your principles that you live by. What would be your, perhaps, top three foundational values that you found you were brought up on, but they've served you well as headmaster. I think
1: sort of first in there is about relationships, and I think is about uh, sort of for me positive relationships are of huge, huge importance. And I think to move that on a level, I think the idea that actually um, that it's about the underdog and it's about looking out for other people. You know, I think that was absolutely fundamental in the way my parents brought me up, you know, so my, my, the, um, I'm just just digressing from your question for a second, so, so one of the unusual things my parents did was, when they were in their early 30s with three children, and I was number four on the way, um, my father was working at a prestigious university in the UK, they moved to South America, and they moved for a couple of years to Chile and South America in the early 1970s, and I think they did it just, just out of a sense of mission, actually, that actually they thought, we can be involved in something exciting, and we can help to change the world from that place. So, something about relationships, firstly. Secondly, something about looking out for, being alert to, uh, I, you know, the the least, the last, the lost, the the people who need help most. Um, I think my values, sort of beyond that, are about curiosity. Um, a, 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 which is really about saying that the world is the most amazing and fascinating place and, you know, we should never be bored in the world uh, because it's the most extraordinary place. to And and then something about optimism, Mm. that that actually there is a huge amount to be grateful for, to give thanks for, to remain optimistic in. And I think actually I've definitely a thing that I've learnt more and more through leadership. I mean, you've alluded to the, the, the fact that, you know, leadership will always be a turbulent journey is gradually realizing that that actually that's true for everyone you know so there aren't some people who have had an incredibly smooth journey but actually everyone has had plenty of challenges so something in there about relationships the value of curiosity uh, staying optimistic
0: yeah the great foundational values which i'm sure Stan, you, stand you in good stead And i was having a fascinating conversation with one of the guests the other day on the series and they were saying look there's you know there's there's hundreds of thousands of books on leadership no one's yet found the solution is the one right way I don't claim that the model that we have is the right way it's just a a useful framework to have some conversations and to find out what helps people be successful and happy because people can be successful but deeply Mm -hmm. unhappy or they can be happy but not successful um but actually I think happiness is the most important thing Mm -hmm. that elusive bit of happiness but also what works for one person might work for you, but it might not work for everybody else. So I think we do need to be massively flexible and always willing to learn and understand new models and new ways of of leading people, particularly with the new generations that you're getting, Mm -hmm. who are very different from yourself and myself and our generation, and that you need to constantly keep learning and unlearning things to to cope with that. What do you find about um, that sort of, the latest generation you've got and their attitudes compared to the, our generation? Yeah, honestly, I think they're fabulous. I think the, um, honestly, I think
1: they really, really are fabulous. So I think if there's, if, if, I think to some extent, we're in the, here, we're in the business of myth-busting about teenagers. And um, actually, the experience of working with teenagers and young people day in day out is, you know, they can be very demanding. And there'll be some who go through very difficult times and periods you know and and that will definitely be true and there'll definitely be lots of teenagers who make mistakes and they'll all make mistakes but actually no I'm endlessly amazed by actually how nice they are and how friendly they are and how curious they are about the world even if it's in their own slightly strange and new language and how actually this generation just as much as any other generation wants challenge and wants opportunity and wants um, self-esteem,
0: you
1: know, and wants to feel valued and wants to feel that they've got their own place in the world. Um, so, so I think lots of those things don't change. I think the um, there are definitely externals that do change. So, I think if we could um, anything we can do to unglue our children from their mobile phones once in a while would be fabulous. And I think if I've got one bit of encouragement to parents, you know, I do try and say this to uh, parents of our younger pupils here: it is. You know, the whole range of digital and mobile technologies is I think parents can be um, scared of the young generations. They can be scared of setting boundaries, really. And I think I would say to to parents that actually your children are just the same as you were at that age. They want the same things, but you are their parents. So my encouragement to the parents would be to say, you know, actually, for your 11 year old, If the rule is mobile phones downstairs and it never goes upstairs or for your 14 year old, if the rule is I take your mobile phone off you at this time of day, I would would urge parents to retain that in -hmm. their power. So but but actually, no, I I honestly think teenagers are the most fabulous group of people to work with, um, although time consuming.
0: Yeah. And it is a very good point, not just for teenagers, but for us, this um, digital detox Mm. and 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 the the sort of certainly the hour before bed when they really for for sleep and they need sleep more than anybody um that you need i, I even have these wonderful let me bring them off these wonderful blue light filtering glasses these are my these are my bono glasses oh, oh, they, these are these are absolutely fabulous and uh, uh, they're, they're fabulous so so i i <laughs> i tend to slip those on um about an hour before bed just to if i am with any digital technology or watching tv then then you get that filter so that the melatonin um does build up as it should do rather than thinking that you're still in the middle of the day um there's an excellent (laughs) book i i commend on this called the chicadian code which is about our body clocks and it talks very much about children and teenagers and the clocks and how they work and that we need to give them the consistency and the uh, that ability to have sufficient sleep
1: Mm. no no it's really really interesting i think the um yeah, I mean, sort of having said that, I think the the pressures on teenagers are extraordinary in mm-hmm. some ways now. So, you know, and I, and I think social media definitely has a part to play in that. We, you know, we definitely see it in this school, just as they will in every school. I was sort of challenged by something I heard the other day, though. So somebody said, somebody somebody said, Oh, schools and society constantly says, Oh, the, oh, the world is the, the world's an increasingly competitive place, the world's more more competitive. Than ever, and I sort of think, oh yeah, okay, we do say that and think that in schools, but but he said this was an adult, and, and 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 he said, well, the school's more complicated the the world is more complicated than ever ever it was. He said, but actually, my experience of the world is it's full of people who are there to help you, that actually go out into the world, and actually you will find that there are people ready to help you on your journey, support your. I thought that's been quite interesting. That's definitely challenged my way of speaking to young people and thinking actually that the language we use around them will frame the way that they are anxious about the world or how they see, see other people
0: i couldn't say more so a lot of my training was in neurolinguistic programming so that words create worlds mm. that that the, be be very careful in the language you use if it's martial language that you use you will tend to engender a very competitive forceful environment and so um, these untrue limiting assumptions that we live as if true and the language that we use happens in the businesses i work with whether they you know rubbish something or decry somebody or whether they appreciate them they will flourish and grow or they will wither and die and and you've hit on something very powerfully Um, Thinking about uh, what we focus on, PQ is meaning and purpose, the second of the eight components that I'm always interested to hear from leaders. And I'm interested in this whole aspect of vocation, calling, why you do what you do, Chris. And and what would be your tip on people finding their sense of purpose in the world, particularly the pupils as they're growing up?
1: I, I I think the tip from me would be be open to possibilities you hadn't expected. You know, so I had really quite a clear vision of where I thought I was gonna go. You know, I did a PhD and there were academics in my family and I imagined I'd end up working in in a university. And and actually that just wasn't right for me at all. And I'm I'm, I'm just sort of always grateful that a slightly bumpy path took me to teaching, took me to a school that uh, took a risk on me as a young and uh, untrained teacher. And actually I found there a place where I really thrived and that and that I loved. I think the um, I think in terms of sort of the purpose of it, or sort of the purpose it for me now, I think probably comes from two or three different things. I think the the aspect of the job that I, as a as I say, I think is the absolute privilege is the sense of what I suppose you might sort of call the kind of the parochial ministry of, of, of being ahead you know, there's an outward facing part to the job and there's the strategic planning part to the job and there's the accountability part. But actually sort of to me, a huge amount about of, of it is that privilege of thinking, you know, you you are sort of the person in the centre of the ring and all sorts of extraordinary things happen around you and to be part of that community. Schools are just amazing communities and, and to be able to sustain them mm. is, is, is really quite fabulous yeah. and, and a wonderful thing to be to be part of.
0: Brilliant. And and in the schools, of course, there's a lot of sport, there's a lot of physical exercise. And, and, and for you as a leader and your teachers, um, you need to look after your health and well-being, mental and physical. Uh, what would be a tip from you, from your own experience of um, looking after your, your physical health and well-being and, and a tip on looking after your mental health and well-being?
1: I think I think physically the the so sort of so for me I'm I'm a runner so I've, I've always been a runner and I've and I've loved it. Um, I think the the overarching principle is that actually your well-being really does matter right now. So it is worth prioritising today. You know if you're too busy to look after your physical health, then you're too busy and actually you you need to re re-evaluate your priorities. I think in terms of sort of the well-being messages that we would very often give in school i, I sort of tend to say that you're know, on the one hand it's about for pupils it's about friends family and school so it's about those things and on the other hand it's about looking after yourself so it's about diet exercise and sleep so friends family and school diet exercise and sleep uh, and um yeah but but certainly in terms of you know particularly physical activity it's it's, it's just such a gift. And so it's just so fabulous to see with young people, you know, there'll be some who love rugby, some who love netball. I I don't really mind what it is, but actually for pupils who realise that actually your body's there to be used and to be enjoyed and, um, yeah, and it can take you on the most amazing adventures and journeys. So hopefully, you know, that's definitely absolutely one of our aims is
0: is that through physical activity. Uh, every pupil will find their niche. Fantastic. And from health and well being, the, the next area that I'm interested in means a lot to me is emotional and social intelligence, EQ. And, and when I look back over my education um, at St. Olive School in New York and uh, Welbeck College, uh, one of the Army's Sixth Form Colleges, mm-hmm. which I think is now closed, sadly, but there wasn't a lot of emphasis on emotional and social intelligence, it was IQ but IQ only accounts for 6% of people's success in business and life, whereas EQ accounts for 30%. So what are you doing to try and develop people's emotional and social intelligence that they can use their emotions intelligently as they're growing up, particularly when the prefrontal cortex is not developed. And so their rational ability to make emotionally sensible decisions are there, but their amygdala is, is heightened. And the freeze, flight, fight response. What 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 have you found to develop EQ among your pupils?
1: Yeah, I think we, one of the things that we, that we, we we like a lot is we've introduced, a course, a few years ago called our values course. It's based on a course called the um, Penn Resilience Course from um, from the US, from sort of positive psychology work of kind of Martin Seligman. Oh yeah, and 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 others. I think there, what we're trying to do from day one in the school. I think it's fair to say that pupils, um, I think pupils enjoy it. And I think, but I think different pupils will take it on at different rates. But it's to try and give pupils from day one, a language and a way of thinking about themselves that's going to be helpful in the future. So perhaps they recognise their stress triggers. Perhaps they recognise negative self-talk. And, they, and they, they've talked about it in a lesson. They perhaps talked about some scenarios. And we want them then, even as 11 and 12 year olds, uh, to sort of recognise when actually there's self-sabotage going on at home. And the, 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 the little inner voice is saying, oh, you're not good enough, you can't do it. Oh, this is just the same as last time it's going to end up. And to think, OK, but from those lessons, I've got the tools to start to challenge that. or And sort of similarly with kind of negotiation skills, uh, to sort of understand that there is this spectrum from um, sort of, you know, whether you're a very quiet person or a very loud person, to say that no everyone has a right to have their voice heard uh, and equally um your voice is worth so not only is your voice worth hearing but other people are worthy of respect in that so we try and do that formally wow i think i think the other thing we love doing in school is that the profile of debating is really high and um it, it is just fabulous to see uh you know particularly perhaps you see 15 and 16 year olds uh, when you see some of them stand up for the first time and just presenting their own opinions in ways that are actually just surprising and wonderful and interesting. And, you know, sometimes it comes out right and sometimes it comes out wrong. Um, but, some, but, but I think that work about oracy and debating is really, really important.
0: Fantastic. No, I'm really genuinely impressed because uh, I'm a big fan of Martin Seligman and his work on positive psychology, and mm. and uh, I, I just think it's fabulous if you can catch people early because, um, yeah, negative self-talk um, drummed into people early on. I mean, I, I remember with horror, a teacher in my school in Halifax, my my primary school, and I was struggling with my maths and my spelling, and she said, you really must sort this out. She sort of thought it was, a, it was me not trying enough. And if you don't sort out your spelling in your maths, you're going to become a dustman. Like, what? I mean, I mean, in those days, they never knew of dyslexia. I was dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and But yet, you know, she made me feel I was stupid. You know, you're, you're, you're being stupid here. Come mm-hmm. on. And so, but until I was age 30, I, 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 people would say to me, oh, you're, you're really quite clever, John. And I go, no, no, no. I'm thick. I'm thick. You know, I, I struggled at school. I'm thick. But actually... I then became a visiting professor at Cass Business School. So I'm not that thick, but I had to prove to a teacher who's long dead that I wasn't stupid. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my mother believed in me. And she said, look, while you might not get your maths and your spelling quite right, you like people and you'll get on well with people and we'll find a way for you. Everybody's got different intelligences. And we know from Gardner's different eight types of intelligences and others that there's multiple ways that people are intelligent. And an IQ test just allows you to take an IQ test. It's uh, definitely, I've come across some super bright people who are just catastrophically disastrous with the way they interact. And we have the label NANP, not allowed near people. And you just want to keep them in an ivory tower doing some great quantum work, but don't leave them near anybody to leave. But I do think that's nice to hear what you're doing at at, uh, Lancaster Royal Grammar School. And and that takes me on to another aspect quite linked to it, which has become very important these days, which is rather than in our campus focusing on IQ, we've taken it to CQ, collective and cultural intelligence. This diversity, equality and inclusion of people who, as you say, were different from you, like your experience uh, as you were born in South America, in, in Chile there. And uh, what's your tip about helping people have greater cultural intelligence, to, to understand, respect, difference?
1: I think the, I suppose my reflections are really about the obligation on schools to, to, to make sure that every pupil has that as broad and a possible experience as they possibly can of the world. I think the, um, can, in a way, it's the privilege of childhood that children grow up in, in a limited world. And it's amazing how you know, we'll have pupils who arrive in year seven Whose view of the world really is quite limited. And, and of course it is. And that in, in, in a way, that's, there's a sort of wonderful naivety about that. Um, but actually, there's an obligation on schools to make sure that schools not only in themselves are as rich and diverse as they possibly can be, but also that through them it's possible for every pupil to have as broad a cultural experience as, as they possibly can. I mean, I, th- I think when I when I started at LRGS, I used to I used to say I wanted the school to have. Um, a meaningful link with at least one school on every continent. I think we haven't quite, you know, we haven't quite got, got there. But what we have got is um, actually, particularly through boarding, something really, really powerful in the school. Now, actually, the, the catchment in the community of the school is quite mixed. So we're ethnically quite diverse. We're religiously quite diverse. Got a, um, the school's got a Christian foundation, but we've got a very significant proportion of pupils who are Muslim in the school. Um, but actually through boarding, you know, we have borders from Hong Kong, we'll have borders from Southeast Asia, uh, one or two borders from West Africa. And actually to have those pupils, not just as people you meet on a trip somewhere, but actually as your friend who you play rugby or netball with, or the person you sit next to in the classroom, actually those that, you know, ultimately it is through relationships. It's through getting to know people and, and, and and actually nothing could be more important.
0: Yeah. and, And you've reminded me that, um, I'm going back. I was a platoon commander at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. And we've got our 31st reunion this December. And um, it will be wonderful going back to, to see people who, you know, a number of them are from the UK, a large number, but also others come from all over the world. And in my original platoon, when I was an Officer of Cadet, I'm still best friends now with Errol Stewart from Jamaica, who was my best man when Lee and I got married six and a half years ago. Uh, With Jeffrey Bostic, who's uh, uh, the minister in charge of health in Barbados, uh, dealing with uh, COVID and and all the the dangers there. We've got the assistant to King Abdullah, a major general uh, in the Jordanian army. Uh, We had a guy who I think was a a, a rebel commander in uh, Zaire. He's since disappeared. I think he was in the Congo somewhere. Sorry. And he disappeared. I think he he probably was uh, unfortunately killed. Uh, and then the general in charge of the earthquake relief program in Nepal and they were all my friends in my platoon of 30 mm-hmm. and 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 that was a wonderful education aged 18 to, to be with people from such different backgrounds and and different cultures and to mm-hmm. learn that they're not wrong they're just very different and who are you to think that your way is the right way yeah uh, yeah I was, I was just going to say
1: I think if there's a challenge for schools I think the the um, the, the challenge for our school, as well as lots of other schools, is that actually the leadership and the governors of the school, uh, the diversity of that group doesn't yet reflect fully the diversity of the pupil body, and actually it should do. You know, so I, I certainly know one or two colleagues of mine in other places, so I think about, so a good friend of mine, is Irfan Latif, who's head of a boarding school in London, um, working on this really powerfully in a really positive way. Um, because actually, ultimately, we should not just... Um, you know, not just want those values for others, but we should visibly model them ourselves. Yeah. And if there's an ambition over the next few years, we'd love to get to that point.
0: Yeah, and one of the interesting things that uh, I'm a member, a livery member of the Goldsmiths Company, and we're looking at our mentoring program. Just discussing it today, so that um, the, the court who run the company um, become mentors to new liverymen who've uh, men and women who've come up, and that the liverymen themselves become mentors to the freemen who've joined before and it's really important and i also fed in that it's important to have reverse mentoring so the younger members are advising the court on how their generation see yeah. the organization yeah. and i wonder what can be done for reverse mentoring of your teachers and of, of you and your deputy head mm. by pupils, so that you learn from them what's what's your approach
1: no yeah it's been interesting i think the um sort of like everyone else somewhat affected by the pandemic but actually what's been great over the last 18 months, last two years, has been actually setting up a diversity group of pupils in school, led by pupils. Uh, I suppose really trying, trying to look at everything in school. So whether it's about our uniform policy, uh, whether it's about the curriculum and the content of the curriculum, uh, whether it's about issues of kind of representation and visibility in schools. You know, it's, it's been great to see that little group just starting to bubble up and grow and then to have one or two former students. So, you know, we had a couple of uh, former students who came back and actually one or two of them were quite challenging and sort of said, actually, this was our, this was, this was my experience of being a black student at LRGS and, you know, 99% of it was fabulous, but actually there were one or two things that should not have happened 10 years ago. And actually, how are you making sure that doesn't happen now? And I think, you know, that challenge is, you, there couldn't be a more important challenge than that for us because our obligation is to the individual pupil, you know, because, because actually, you know, there are, there are 1,200 of them, but to their parents, the school only has one pupil. So our obligation has got to be to that one pupil. It's very, it's
0: very good. And, and I was thinking uh, here, you and I are, we're not wearing ties, we're not wearing a suit. Uh, when I was in my podcast two years ago, I was in a, a suit, jacket and tie um mm. suit and tie uh, are the pupils still expected to wear ties or has that well, gone
1: no i i sometimes think schools seem to be we seem to be left as almost the only institution in the world that still wears ties i think so so yeah so i wear a tie on a daily basis um
0: i see it hanging behind the yeah uh, the, the, that's right, we
1: have the little collection just in just in case it all goes wrong and um yeah whether it will just be one of those little cultural remnants that, that, that schools will just persist for another generation wearing ties and, until finally their parents wonder what ties were all for and um, yeah. and then we're perhaps but but no for, but but for now for now ties are quite important. so the um somebody came to me the other day saying um very eager that the um i don't know if you've heard of Warhammer, which is like a little uh, fantasy role role player game they've got a very keen warhammer club. That meets after school on Friday, and he came to me and he, said, and, he, and he said, "Look, the rugby club's got a tie. the 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 music the musicians have got a tie." Uh, and he goes, "And uh, the good news is, he goes, I've designed a Warhammer tie, and uh, so so the tie is not dead."
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I was at uh, St. Olives, I was very proud to be a prefect. I was the library monitor, mm, and, and I got a special tie. Yeah, no, and, and it stuff. meant yeah. it meant something to yeah, me. It does. It was, it it was does. like my first experience of leadership, and actually. I remember going into the library and wandering around this small room, half the size of of my study here, and going, what should I be doing? I mean, should I be telling people off for for sitting in the wrong way? Or what do I do? This is is my job and I don't know what to do. And no one briefed me. No one told me what was expected of me. Uh, But I felt very excited that I was a monitor and it was... that's, that's fabulous and, and you know and that's what schools should
1: do so, so you know so schools should be like little I sometimes say to the sick formats they should be like little incubators where it's the safest possible place to take on responsibility or to do any new you know to start some initiative you know you you're surrounded by people who will literally give up their time to help you so you know whether it's to just to sort of get things done or whether it's to make things happen mm-hmm. um, you, you, the, that should be people's experience. So I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm pleased yeah. to hear about your library sign. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I never, endorse your library sign.
0: Never underestimate. <laughs> never underestimate the uh, the impact these early leadership experiences mm. can have a, a very positive effect. Or, or, or being in the scouts. Or I, I loved yeah. orienteering and suddenly mm-hmm. found having been useless at sport, according to a teacher, and uh, always the one on the, the line when they were choosing people for their teams. I was the last one to get chosen. Uh, but then I suddenly found I was the Army Under-19 orienteering champion. I mean, mm, not, not a big pool to be in, but but then it took me on to become uh, the world champion of the Double Mountain Marathon in Cyprus. But, but you know, at school, you would have said, ah, the guy's a complete loser. Yep. He's not going to do anything. So I think being a late developer is always a fascinating area, and I definitely was one of those. Uh, perhaps I think my, uh, my friends and daughters might say that I still got some development to go, but... We're, you know, when you what are you going to do when you grow up, Daddy? I'm not sure at the age of sixty. But um, resilience is the next one, um, and certainly as a leader in education, you you have many steps forward, but a number of steps back, and things that you hoped get shattered, and things don't work out as you wanted. What would be your tip on resilience in adverse situations?
1: I think the the overall tip is that. Actually, Rome wasn't built in a day. That you always overestimate what you can do in six months. You always underestimate what you can do in five years. So you know, keep on building. Keep that long-term perspective in mind. So, so I think trying to battle the against the battle against impatience. Sort of thinking actually, sometimes the timing isn't in our hand. Um, but along with that, I sort of I, I sort of always like this phrase that says progress wasn't made by contented people. So I think if if you're rubbing up against frustration and disappointment, well, well actually that, that's the way that things get done. That's the way the world in, the world the world improves. Um, yeah, but the, the you know there've there certainly been plenty of challenges, and you know, and I, I just just remember very clearly the um, you know the, the, so the start of the first lockdown, the day that schools closed, um, sort of we were thrust into this completely new world. Mm-hmm. So borders were. Uh, getting on flights, uh, and I remember them leaving. And actually, neither they nor we knew whether whether or when they'd be coming back to school. And at the same time, we're we're um, emptying the school buildings, and like everyone else on earth, you know, going going online. And I think partly through that is is about appreciating that actually, with great teams, you can do amazing things. Mm. Um, no, no, it was, it was it was a very difficult time. But I look back and think, well, I I sometimes say it was a kind of, it was a kind of Rumpelstiltskin operation that we were like, whoever it was, was she the miller's daughter, sort of stuck in there, told she must weave straw into gold overnight. But funnily enough, um, when the chips are down, sometimes you can. So, uh, you know, we were very proud that we got, you know, literally on day one of lockdown, we were teaching live video lessons on teams, however imperfectly. So I think those are some of the reflections. sort of number one is be patient. Number two is, is, is actually there will be a way through it. Probably yeah. not on your own,
0: but with others there will be a way through it. Uh, great, great advice. And, and then the, the, the penultimate one is BQ, uh, brand reputation, image, and impact. And what would be your tip about creating and managing your own brand and learning from what others perceive of you? because uh, as a headmaster, you can get a little isolated and up in your ivory tower, um, a bit like a captain on a ship eating on your own. But clearly that's not your style, Chris, as I know. But what would you do to make sure that you learn from 360 feedback? Do do you have any process by that, where you get it from the pupils and the teachers on how they perceive what's working well about you as a leader and what you need to do to improve?
1: Yeah, yes, we do. I I, I think I'm generally, I think one part of sort of taking the leap into actually taking other people's opinions seriously is is to welcome it and to recognize that actually people are there to help you and generally people will be much more positive and constructive than than you ever expected um but on the other hand i think it is then about taking people's doubts and concerns really seriously um the psychological difficulty in there is that we always we always hear the 1%. And, and you know, the the, the the one negative comment is going to be the one that rattles around our brains. Um, but I think certainly for me, in terms of hearing feedback from people here, it's about understanding. So so I think you know, when I first arrived at the school, I think people were concerned that this was a school that was very comfortable in its own skin, knew how it how it saw the world. Uh, and, you know, in those early days and weeks, sort of thinking, actually, right, who, who is this person who literally doesn't know any of us? Uh, can we trust him? Uh, is he visible in all the right areas? Is he, is he saying the right things? And, and I think gradually the job is to gain people's confidence. But, it, but in the end, it is about time and listening to people and gaining trust. And, you, you know, those are, those are the important kind of long term. work. So there aren't any quick fixes in it I think it really is about building deep roots of relationships with people uh, so that actually they understand over time that no I I, my heart really is in the same place as their heart is or actually if the school is going to move in a very slightly different direction uh, to understand what that's going to mean for them and how they should receive it and uh, yeah just those really interesting aspects of sort of just negotiating relationships with really important people in the organisation.
0: Yeah, really good point, which leads me on nicely to legacy. What What would you, you know, you're in the business of you don't own it, you're looking after it, it's stewardship for a period of time, you are yeah. the headmaster of LRGS. So what would you like your legacy to be when you leave the school?
1: I think the, I think the main legacy... Um, exist in the pupils who have gone out from the school and I think so, so sort of level one of the legacy is about pupils who really do look back on their time and say uh, you know when he sort of say oh yeah you know when Dr Pyle used to talk about find your niche and we want everyone to find one area outside the classroom that becomes really important to them or find your voice to have people who look back and say actually there were individual teachers or opportunities or lessons or clubs where I did find my voice and a little bit as you say sort of You know, sort of half joking me about the library prefect, people who say actually the roots of where I ended up started there. Because pupils from here will go on and do the most extraordinary and remarkable things. So sort of that that's aim number one. But I think in terms of the school, the aim is just to leave the school in a better place. You know, is and I think particularly my concerns there would be around um, making sure that we're in the business of being able to attract and recruit and retain and then send off elsewhere the most fabulous teachers. Mm. So, you know, in an ideal world, what I want to do is uh, recruit the very, very best and then let them get on with it. And, yes. uh, you know, and if, if I can look around the common room in three years' time or five years' time or whatever it is and think, do you know what, the, These are this is a fabulous set of teachers – yeah and then i think i've done my job for the for, for the start of the next generation
0: uh, really good and and i think someone else likened it to, to like uh, eagles in an eerie's nest where they're up on the mountain and you let them have their patch of sky to go hunting mm. rather than to be turkeys in a barn under a spotlight uh where they're up to their knees in shit mm-hmm. that's not that's not what you want and 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 the this this idea of um the netflix ceo um wrote a reed hastings wrote an interesting book um and in his book he was talking about the keeper test and he said if any of your in your case if any of your teachers were to say i'm off to another school would you fight hard to keep them and if the answer to some of them is no i wouldn't keep fight hard at all I'd let them go be Mm. grateful then actually why are they still there Uh, and that you really want the very best, that you would fight hard to keep them. I think that's quite an interesting one. Talking about that, teams, uh, executive teams or leadership teams or academic teams or sports teams, what's been your lesson, your one top tip that you give people listening about taking a toxic team and helping it become a high-performing team? What have you found works?
1: I think, I think there are sort of two, two different things I'd say. I think sometimes, um, as they say, if you can't change the people, change the people. And I think sometimes the lesson is, if there is somebody in that team dynamics who actually, not on the basis of partial information, but on the basis of a, a sustained set of, inf- of information you know is not right and is damaging in that role, then actually you're better off taking the decision earlier rather than later. So I think that's sort of that's that's the hard lesson, and it is, is number one. Generally, my experience of teams is that teams sort of teams run on trust, and the vast majority of teams that I've worked in, um, you know, and some of them have worked well, and some of them have grown over time, uh, are teams where people feel actually we are genuinely trusted. So so teams that are based around high trust, high challenge, there's a, there's appropriate accountability. But people know that actually the energy doesn't all come from the center, or it's not, it's not the constrictive CEO at the center of this whose whose diktat is is constrictive and but, but actually genuinely trusting that there are other people in, this, in the organization who might have better ideas than I do or whose judgments are well worth listening to. Very, very fine.
0: And talking about other ideas, that's um, an ultimate question about books um, you read widely and, yeah. and have done over the years about leadership and, and ideas. Uh, what's your favourite book you'd recommend to other people and what was it that you say it's worth reading because mm-hmm. of something?
1: Yeah, one of the things we do in the sort of senior team here is every, well, in theory, every term, in reality, every, every year, really, we have a book that we're reading. Uh, I think the most successful one of those, actually, I wonder if this will come out backwards, is, is, is uh, this book, Legacy by James Kerr, I think was probably the most, I think it was the book that as a senior leadership team we saw sort of thrived on most. So just really fabulous book about um, so that yeah, the, the strap line is what the all blacks can teach us about the business of life. But actually one of those really easy to read books that is actually just very powerful. And you just come away with those phrases rattling around your head. So he says, So you're kind of about work ethic. He talks about sweep the sheds, was really about humility, uh, talks about um. Uh, be a better ancestor. Uh, be one of those people that plants trees you'll never see. Um, and and actually, yeah. So so loved that book. And I think if there's one book I would I would wholeheartedly recommend, uh, it is that of. Um,
0: with a with uh, rather with a rather juicy comment, no dickheads.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's I I, I, yeah. I was going to leave that to you.
0: For, no, for no. That can I everything. can I can say that having had sergeant majors and people who've been very blunt about. Uh, So what are you doing? What's your village doing for an idiot? Now you're here, which is one of his favourite lines he'd say to me. Brilliant. No, thank you. I do. I do love Legacy by James Kerr. And I think you maybe remind me that uh, my way of learning as a dyslexic is audiobook. So I'll I'll be getting Mm. the audiobook again, uh, reigniting it and listening to it again. Okay, brilliant, Chris. And really, uh, finally, if you just introduce yourself again and your role with your two minute top tip to end us all.
1: Right. Thank you very much. Um, Hello, I'm Chris Pyle, head of Lancaster Royal Grammar School. And my two-minute leadership top tip is about the power of patience. So it was um, a vicar in Cambridge many years ago who said to me for the first time, he said, we always overestimate what we can do in six months. We always underestimate what we can do in five years. And he he said, you see, Rome wasn't built in a day, but on the other hand, the cement mixers were working from dawn till dusk. So that would be my leadership top tip. Be patient, keep working.
0: Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a real honor having you on the Inspiring Leadership series. Thank you for your wisdom and your experience and your stories, and I wish you every success at LRGS. Thank you.
1: Jonathan, thank you very much. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you.